0: Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, live in the Morton studio. Today on the show, we're going to talk a little about spray coverage, but if you've got any questions for us about that or anything that's going on in your farm, you can give us a call here, 844 44 AGPHD. That's 844-442-4743. You can also email us, radio at agphd.com, or send us a note on Twitter, AgPHD Media, or Brian Hefty. All right, so just a couple of quick things on spray coverage, and then we're going to get to the Ag PhD mailbag. With spray coverage, I would just tell you it's tremendously important. Some products that you may spray don't move very well. I'll give you some examples. Herbicides. Liberty, Basagran, Buctrel, Gramoxone. I mean, they're, we, we for years have called them contact killers. So if you don't have fantastic spray coverage, you don't get the weed control you're after. And the big thing that I always try to bring up to people is, look, the herbicide's going to cost you the same either way. So if you have poor coverage or great coverage, you know, your, your total net cost is the same. So please do a great job with spray coverage so you get the most out of that product. Now, I mentioned some herbicides, but let's talk about fungicides a little bit. Most fungicides move only in the xylem of the plant that only moves upward. So if you don't cover the lower leaves on the plant, they could get disease. If you don't cover the lower portions of individual leaves, the lower portions of those leaves could get disease. So because we have all these products that don't move very well, the spray coverage thing gets to be a big deal. Now on the flip side, Everybody wants to do what they can to reduce off-target movement. That's great. I'm, I'm all for that. So there's this balancing act all the time of, well, I got to think about what I'm spraying, what's my risk that I can move off-target, and how important is spray coverage for me? So like with 2,4-D and dicamba, spray coverage is still important. It's just not as important as if you're spraying Liberty or a fungicide, or something like that. And you have to follow the label directions. So with the new Dicamba and 2,4-D products, you're required to use great big droplets, which means your spray coverage is going to be worse, guaranteed. And when it's worse, guaranteed, you will have slightly less control. Now, I'm not going to say it's dramatically less, but it's a little bit less, and you just have to understand that. So this is part of the reason, too, why when you know you're already up against it and you say, ooh, my coverage, I, I, because of what the, the nozzle I'm required to use here, it isn't going to be perfect. So then you got to think about, all right, because it's not going to be perfect, I probably need to be out there a little earlier spraying smaller weeds. I probably shouldn't be cutting the rate, things like that, making sure you use the right adjuvants, all that. So anyway, we'll talk about spray coverage throughout the show today. But right now, let's get to the Ag PhD Mailbag. It's the mailbag! First question comes in from Albert. He says, uh, hi, guys. I'm a huge fan. The other day I was on this forum and a debate began about base saturations and their needs versus not. I was shocked as I listened to you all. I've listened and read Neil Kinsey's book, uh, Dr. Albrecht's. Uh, I spoke to various chemists at Ward Labs, etc. all seeming to support some focus on the base saturations alongside pH macros and micros. However, I'm curious if you've seen the academic work going against this focus and your thoughts on it. All right, so Albert, I'll I'll put it to you this way. Um, In agriculture, there are a lot of varying opinions, and a lot of people go off of small studies, small sample sizes, their own personal experience in a small way without lots of replicated data, years of experience, things like that. And so it, it really becomes a challenge because there are so many things that could effectively be your yield limiting factor. And occasionally it's rain. Most of the time it's not. Um, and for our listeners, by the way, everybody listening, you might say, oh, rain's always my yield limiting factor. No, there's no possible chance that it is because think about in any field you've got, you have yield variation, right? Not everything yields as poor as the poorest spot in the field. Well, if not everything yields as poor as the poorest spot in the field, then that's telling you that there's something other than rainfall that was your yield limiting factor there. So anyway, where I'm going with all this is I am so thankful that on our farm now, we've been doing one-acre soil test grids for five years. We farm about 3,500 crop acres, and we haven't done every acre every year, but we've done over 2,000 acres. So in other words, over 2,000 points of data every year for five years. In fact, I think it's maybe even over 2,500. But anyway, the point is I've got thousands and thousands and thousands of data points so now, instead of three little strip trials or two years worth of stuff, i got five years worth of thousands of data points. And I can just tell you, it certainly appears that the stuff Kinsey Kinsey's talked about for years, Albrecht talked about, a lot of their stuff is dead on. So I, I I would just tell you, is base saturation and soil pH, the levels and balance of macros and micros important? Yeah, all those things are important. Now, it's possible none of them could be your yield limiting factors. So if none of those is, then you're going to say, oh, it's not important. Well, in that case, sure. But if we're trying to get better and make our soil better, make our yields better, um, yeah, I uh, all I can tell you is we're looking at lots and lots and lots of data points, and we do work with thousands of farmers all over the world. The base saturation stuff is real. pH is important. Macros and micros and soil balance, all important. All right, next one comes from Tia, who asks, uh, curious as to how resistance management is done with BT corn. Spray rotation is easy, but um, you can't really uproot a plant. <laughs> nope that's that's very true so what they do with bt corn is and it depends on where you're at and and the system and everything but a lot of it like in my region of the united states there's five percent refuge in the bag so in other words five percent of it does not have the bt so the idea is that a bunch of these bugs are going to feed on that and then hopefully we're going to kill them somehow some way maybe with the the other, the stuff that has BT, maybe with insecticides, something like that. The big thing that we always tell people is, I don't care if we're talking weeds or insects, whatever it is, what's dead can't become resistant. So we just need to make sure we're doing a great job con- with control. Again, whether it's weeds or bugs, doesn't matter. But yeah, that's that's basically how they're doing it. So they're leaving what they call refuge acres, acres that don't have the BT. So, there's a good percentage of corn in the United States that doesn't have BT, just as an example, and there's a bunch, or at least some, in every field. All right, stay tuned. We're going to talk spray coverage right after this.
1: This is Officer Jones calling for backup. Send four. Location? Craver back 40. Looks like we've got Palmer amaranth, kochia, some common water hemp. Resistant weeds. Copy that. You'll need a good
2: tank mix partner. I'm sending tough 5 UC. Come out with your hands up!
1: Guys, we're surrounded. Crack down on repeat offenders. Add Tough 5EC to your post-emergence tank mix. Learn more at toughonweeds.com. Always read and follow label directions. Tough is a registered trademark of Belgium Crop Protection.
3: One of the most important things you can do for your farm is improve drainage. Hi, I'm Darren Hefty. On Wednesday, February 8th, we're hosting a free Ag PhD tiling clinic in the Morton Center on our farm near Baltic, South Dakota. Whether you've been tiling for years or looking to plan your first project, you won't want to miss this event. We'll have a whole host of information for you, including a legal session with the country's top drainage lawyers, as well as presentations on tile design, lift stations, and ways to approach neighbors and landlords about tiling issues. For more details, go to agphd.com.
1: There's an innovative new soybean herbicide on the market that's helping close the door on weed resistance and open new doors to productivity. Preview 2.1 SC Herbicide from UPL is a multi-mode action pre-emergent that controls the most resistant broadleaf weeds at the beginning of the season and continues to control later weeds with strong residual activity. Ask your retailer about Preview 2.1 Herbicide from UPL and always read and follow label directions.
0: Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, live in the Morton studio. Today in the show, we're talking a little about spray coverage. And first on, we've got our friend Nick Flights with us. He's with Pentair. Nick, how are you doing today? I'm doing very good. Thanks for having me on. All right. We were talking a little bit earlier in the show. I think this spray coverage thing has gotten... Maybe more complicated now because if you look at there are certain products like the new 2,4 D and new Dicamba products that have specific nozzles that they're requiring and they may have great big droplets, but we're telling people, oh, you want a, a little bit smaller droplet to use for fungicide and something else. And then the guy's like, well, wait a second. What if I do some tank mixing and this and that? So are you getting more questions about this spray coverage issue and just what nozzle to use in general? I have to assume you are.
2: we definitely are getting a lot more questions than and people looking for the right nozzle combination for these TAC-Mix products. And I'm glad you brought Enlist up because I like what Corteva has done with their label in regards to nozzle approvals, where if you go and look at the Enlist label and look at the approved nozzles, you're going to see a color-coding system where some nozzles are highlighted in green and some are highlighted in yellow. And what they're doing with the highlighting in green is they're telling you that is a more versatile nozzle it's gonna give you a good balance of drift reduction and coverage. Whereas the nozzles that are highlighted in yellow, those nozzles aren't as versatile. They're more focused on higher levels of drift control. So they're gonna have coarser droplets. You're not gonna see as good a coverage. So that's one really good tool and thing I think Corteva did well with their label is giving some more guidance there. So if you're applying a list, you can use that. But I think you can also use that for really most tank mix um, nozzle selections if you're using wanting a nozzle that's coarser droplets and drift reduction, use that information from that label and it's going to help guide you to a nozzle that gives good drift reduction but also gives a really good bounce of coverage.
0: So let's talk about how big that difference can really be. Let's say that you needed to spray dicamba and you need to use an ultra coarse spray droplet switching to a better nozzle for fungicide specifically let's say late season all you had to do is go spray some fungicide what kind of difference in coverage could there be between the ultra course and then something that's that's a little smaller droplet i mean is it 20% different 30% i mean roughly how much different is it
2: i think you're looking at greater than 50% change in coverage if you're looking at yep. the 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 largest the highest drift reduction focus nozzles that really do have uh, primarily ultra coarse droplets, compare that to uh, something like a 3D nozzle or Guardian Air Twin from High Pro that's a medium or coarse droplet. You're going to see, you know, if you cut your droplet size in half, you produce eight times as many droplets per volume of liquid. It's kind of how that relationship works. So going from an ultra coarse droplet to a coarse, you're probably going to have at least eight times as many spray droplets to work with likely could be uh, even more than that to help really get that high droplet density on the leaf surface. So we don't have areas of the leaf that we're not getting coverage
0: for fungicides or insecticides. Okay. I'm going to say, I'm going to repeat your words here because just for anybody listening to the show and you're going to spray a fungicide or something that really requires great spray coverage, like Liberty, for example, herbicide, what what Nick said was, if you cut the spray droplet size in half, that means you will have eight times as many spray droplets. Eight times! So, yeah, your 50% difference in coverage, uh, Nick, that you mentioned, that. yeah, you're right, that may be on the low side.
2: Yeah, and I will say, too, too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. So you don't want to be too fine in your droplet size, especially if you're in an area that it gets drier like I'm in western Nebraska today, you don't want to be too fine in an area like that because you can see droplet evaporation, and that can be detrimental to your coverage. So there's a little bit of a balancing act there to, to keep in mind.
0: All right, one thing before I let you go, Nick, we do have the Ag PhD Spray Tip Guide that we developed together with Pentair, so I just wanted to, to highlight that real quick. Uh, again, we've been talking with Nick Flights here with Pentair. Nick, thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. You bet. All right, we are heading next out to the state of Idaho. got uh, Lance Steinhausen on with us. He's with C&B Equipment. Lance, how are you today?
4: Doing great. How are you guys getting along?
0: Excellent. All right, so out in Idaho... Things are a little more arid out there. What are your big concerns when it comes to the spray droplet thing? I assume, or spray coverage. I assume exactly what Nick talked about at the end—that droplet evaporation—that could be a pretty big deal for you, right?
4: Oh, certainly. Yeah, choosing the right, uh, you know, size of spray tip along with the material, uh, managing—you know—whether we're looking for uh, drift control or if you know we're wanting to get more of a coverage type of application. Uh, but also understanding what evaporation can do to that droplet if we get too small of a droplet size, trying to go go for extreme coverage, um, but having it evaporate.
0: Hey, one of the things, too, since you're on the equipment side, I don't feel like enough people replace their spray nozzles often enough. Can you talk a little about calibration and testing to see if there's enough wear there where you need to replace that nozzle?
4: Yeah, that's a great point that sometimes, you know, the most important part of that sprayer is that spray tip. That's what it all comes down to. And and not understanding, uh, you know, how to inspect and calibrate, in whether it's a replacement, a complete re- replacement, or just, uh, you know, partial. Um, but being able to use a tool such as like a spot-on spray tip calibration. Uh, it's an automated calibration tool that um, you can easily get under each nozzle and calibrate is it putting out the right amount. Uh, there's a manual calibration, but you have to have, uh, you know, a catch pan and then a timer uh, where this automated calibration really helps, you know, that producer, or that custom applicator be able to make sure that, uh, you know, nozzle to nozzle across that whole boom that we don't have more, of a, more than a 10% variance. Uh, and if we do, then we can start evaluating do we need to replace each set of nozzles or is the whole, you know, are we quite a ways off from what that nozzle was designed to do, causing either waste or misapplication.
0: You brought up custom application, and years ago, it it felt like only the custom applicators had great big rigs. Well, now it seems like a a lot of farmers do as well. And like even on our own farm, we got a 120-foot spray boom. So one of the things we worry about is a lot of, well, we have kind of rolling hills, and we just worry about how high up off the ground are we going to have that spray boom? Because the higher it gets, the more problematic this can be for off-target movement, not getting the right spray pattern, that kind of thing. So talk to us just a little about that and the discussions you would have with farmers about spray booms.
4: Yeah, we really want to, you know, obviously get the right tip, but also understanding with wider uh, nozzle degree angle degrees, uh, we're getting proper coverage where you know, if your tips are still in 80 degree spray coverage, uh, we're gonna have to limit how low that boom's gonna be able to go, you know, in a windy condition, uh, just because of that overlap that a 80 degree coverage would do. Uh, when we start looking at some of these newer nozzles that uh, provide 110 to 120 degree coverage, uh, we're able to lower that uh, boom effective height if needed. You don't have to, you know, if it's a calm day and good conditions, uh, operate it at a more comfortable um, height for your speed. Uh, But getting to 110 or 120 degree nozzle really allows us to push the limits of how low that boom can go. For instance, on a 15 inch boom with 120 degree spacing on that nozzle, uh, you can go as low as 15 inches and still get that 100% overlap from nozzle to nozzle. Uh, 20 inch would be you know, as low as 20 inches. So some of that newer nozzle technology uh, really allows us to do some things that, you know, we couldn't do before.
0: Yep. Well said. Again, we've been talking with Lance Steinhausen. He is out in Idaho and with CNB Equipment. Thanks a lot for being on the show today, Lance. Appreciate it.
4: My pleasure. And hope everybody has a great spring coming up.
0: You bet. Thanks. Yeah, I know I for one am really looking forward to spring. This has been a miserable winter where we're at. Almost record snowfall. Terrible cold. I was just looking at uh, the weather station we have on our farm. Yesterday it got to 8 below zero and the wind chills were way, way, way worse than that. So... Anyway, spring can't come soon enough for me. And with with spring comes spring. So that's the reason why we're talking a little about spray coverage today. So hopefully you can get things ready this winter in your shop and you're all set to go for spring. It'll be coming soon. All right, stay tuned. We're going to get back to the phone lines and talk a little more spray coverage right after this.
4: Precision Crop Nutrition Pays.
1: You put everything you've got into securing the next generation of your farm. So why not take it a step further? Commodity Classic is America's largest farmer-led, farmer-focused educational and agricultural experience, where you'll find thought-provoking education, a huge trade show with the latest ag technology, and networking with thousands of farmers who are preparing for the next generation just like you. Join us in Orlando March 9th through 11th, 2023. Learn more at commodityclassic.com.
4: Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from environmental tillage systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. With superior materials, craftsmanship, and best-in-class warranty, a Morton machine storage or workshop is built to stand the test of time. To learn how we can help you expand your farm operation, visit MortonBuildings.com.
3: How can you make your corn crop more successful? I'm Darren Hefty. Thursday, February 9th, we're going to answer that question at a free Ag PhD corn agronomy workshop at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. We'll talk about water management, fertility needs, finding success in cold soils, and we'll discuss how to protect your corn crop from weeds, insects, and diseases that can rob your yield potential. There's a great opportunity to make profit in your corn crop this year. Don't miss the free Ag PhD corn agronomy workshop. Register now at agphd.com.
1: It's planting season, race against the clock season, mistakes can't happen season, and no one helps you face it all like John Deere. Putting technology in your hands that gets you in and out of the field faster, that makes your spacing and depth more accurate, and that gives you the confidence that this season will be your best season.
3: See what you have to gain at johndeere.com slash gainground.
0: Thanks for listening today to Ag PhD Radio. Brian Hefty here broadcasting from the Morton studio today and talking about spray coverage. We're going right back to the phone lines up to North Dakota State University. Got Dr. Paulo Flores on with us. Uh, Dr. Paulo, I, I was curious about this drone weed mapping project that you got. Can you tell us a little about that today? And uh, welcome to the show, by the way. Hi,
5: Brian. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for having me in the show. Yeah, that's a project that we have been working for the last couple of years. And what we're trying to do is basically um, fly the drone over the field, the corn field, and we create a a weed map from the imagery. And through some analysis, we kind of separate the corn from um, the weeds and create a prescription map. So that prescription map gets uploaded to a sprayer, and basically the sprayer goes down the field and shuts the nozzles off on those um, areas in the field where we don't have weeds.
0: Sure. So w- one of the things, I just remember when I was a young agronomist, and I went out to one of my dad's fields, and I go, I don't see any, any weeds out here. I don't think you should spray. And he goes, nope, I'm spraying because we always seem to miss a few, and the product I'm using Will give me a month, month and a half, month and a half's worth of residual. So, how does that enter into this whole equation as well? And and what have you seen? I mean, are there some late season weeds that do pop up yet in those in those areas that don't get sprayed?
5: So um, that's a great question. And um, what we we did to look at the uh, efficacy of our approach to control the weeds is. This field where we we um, carry out this study is actually um, <clears throat> silage corn. So they cut the corn um, for silage, and we yeah. have the opportunity after harvest to go back and fly those the same field. And what we we do, we kind of overlap the as-applied map sure. and look at those cells that were not sprayed in the spring. Mm-hmm. If they have um, more weeds than when we compare with the cells that were sprayed. Yep. So, and we what we saw this last year, it was that there was very little, uh, few weeds on both of the treatments. Sure. So, it shows that on uh, those cells that were not sprayed in the, sp- in the spring, there were no weeds, they didn't need to be sprayed.
0: So uh, how did you guys come up with the idea for something like this? Is this something some organization brought to you? Is this l- like in-house? Oh, hey, let's try this. Or where did you even come up with this in the first place?
5: So this is uh, something that uh, I started probably three years or so, four years back at the Carental Research Center. Yep. And the approach that we, I, I take for this is a little different. You know when people were talking about um mapping weeds in the field yeah. they are usually interested in locate and identify weeds. Yep. Uh and I thought why why don't we locate and identify the corn rows? <laughs> because if we we can identify the corn, it's just one species kinda of growing in a row and it's kinda of all the same uh shape and form. Yep. So um we do is we identify the corn and kind of pull the corn out for the imagery and everything that's left in the field we consider as weeds.
0: So in these fields do you have a pre-emerge herbicide down or anything? Is there some herbicide out there or you're saying hey literally we are spraying nothing in these spots?
5: No that that's I think to is that we're targeting for this approach, we're targeting that second application. Gotcha. Yep, yep. Um, You know, to to get those skips from the pre-emergence application. Yeah. That's our target.
0: Yep. Yeah, there have been a lot of people over the years... Trying to come up with something where they could just spray one time. And I always tell them, I don't know. I, I, you can try it, but I see weed escapes and you don't want to let the weeds go to seed and then you lose yield. You have more weeds in the future. So, yeah, interesting project. Again, it's uh, Dr. Paula Flores from NDSU. Uh, thanks a lot for the time today. Really appreciate it. Great having you on the show.
5: Thanks for having the show. I appreciate it.
0: You bet. All right. Uh, next, we're heading over to the state of Minnesota. Got Mark Burns on with us. He's with Case IH. Hey, Mark, how are you today? Doing well. Excellent. So we're talking a little about spray coverage today. Um, can you maybe talk to us just a little bit about some of the questions that farmers and custom applicators are asking you about some of the different challenges they face in, in the spring and spraying and coverage and all that kind of stuff?
6: Right. Well, you know, spring is a very hectic time because there's an awful lot of stuff that needs to get done from seedbed prep to planting to spraying. So it's, you know, it's really a compressed season and being able to, you know, make the most of the opportunities you have. And that's where, you know, we talk an awful lot with folks about the configuration of the Patriot being optimal weight distribution, which allows you to get in those fields a little earlier, maybe if you know, the conditions aren't significant or ideal, mm-hmm. um, but then it's, you know, utilizing some technology, you know, making sure that we can hold a boom at the ideal level with automatic height control, um, uh, optimum droplet size for the uh, formulations we're putting on. And, you know, we do that and talk with an awful lot of folks about our in-command product.
0: All right. Spring is a little ways away for us yet, but, but I mean, it's going to get here sooner than we maybe think. So let's talk about getting the sprayer ready for spring. Do you have a few tips for us there?
6: Well, yeah. Um, you know, hopefully things were checked over and whatnot before the sprayer was put away last fall. Hopefully. Um, but as, 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 (laughs) yeah, hopefully, (laughs) but as we, uh, you know, pull equipment out of the shed and start thinking about getting ready for, for spring and even early summer applications, it's, it's a great idea just to give it a thorough walk around, making sure things are where they're supposed to be. Um, nothing happened over the winter time that would cause us some grief. Um, you know, and we do, do recommend too that, uh, Sprayer owners work with their dealer. A lot of our dealers offer pre-season inspections, you know, where it's given a once-over by uh, a trained technician, you know, making sure things are working the way they're supposed to, that we have, you know, most up-to-date software and all their electronics. Those types of things are really important.
0: All right. And then how about when a farmer is out spraying? Do you have some tips on how to basically get the best – let's put it this way, get the most acres done in a day, because I think that's what a lot of farmers are after, even like for myself. We want to get as many acres done as possible. So are there any upgrades? Are there any things that a farmer should be thinking about as we go into the spring that could speed up the whole process?
6: Well, I think, you know, we talk an awful lot about efficiencies. And, you know, some of that is not even when you're actually in the field spraying. It could be you know, updating or upgrading your your tendering capabilities, being able to uh, get the sprayer reloaded fast and efficient, you know, so we're back, you know, making full use of of our available time in the field. Um, You know, as we've introduced new products, too, um, you know, we're very mindful of making sure we're in the field as much as we can, and some of that is even uh, road speed, you know, traveling from field to field as fast as we can, too, so... Uh, you know, anything that we can do to, to help speed that along, you know, that that's a great opportunity. And then once you're in the field, you know, making use of that technology. Like I said, boom height control is a big thing. Let the technology keep the booms where they're supposed to be so it's not something that the operator actually has to manually do. And uh and then like I said, the, the PWM type technology lets you drive uh basically as the field conditions allow. You know, if we could step up a mile or two an hour faster. Um, that technology will maintain rate and still give you the droplet size we're looking
0: for. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into it, that's for sure. Mark, if a farmer wants to learn more about some of these different spray technologies and some of the things KSAH offers, where can they go?
6: Well, we've got a, a couple of different channels. First off, our website's got pretty much everything that we produce and all the technology that goes with it there. There's an awful lot of good YouTube videos that we've got on our channel um, and then utilizing the dealer. And then with, with the dealer, we've got a, a, an arsenal of sprayer specialists, uh, actually, KSIH employees that work hand in hand with dealers. These guys actually live in the regions they cover, so they're available for, as a resource for uh, producers to, to
0: use. All right, great stuff. Again, that's Mark Burns with Case IH. Mark, thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. All right, thank you very much. You bet. Right after this break, we're gonna get back to your questions in the Ag PhD mailbag. Stay tuned.
1: It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get out of it depends on what you put in. And Corteva Agriscience gets that. Introducing Nutricia and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us.
4: The value of your farm building is in its ability to protect what's stored inside. That's why Morton Buildings ensures that every machine storage and insulated workshop we build will provide superior strength and durability. As a 100% employee owned company, we're all committed to being the industry leader with a focus on innovation, service, quality, and most importantly, customer satisfaction. To get started on your next project, please visit MortonBuildings.com.
3: The weeds are coming! The weeds are coming! Hey! All repair! This whole midnight ride thing is getting really- But the HPPD resistant weeds are coming. We've got Verdict Herbicide. Verdict Herbicide? Yeah, it's a non-HPPD corn pre-herbicide from BASF. Well, well then. Get some sleep.
4: Yeah, will do.
3: The weeds are coming! Switch to Verdict Herbicide! Always read and follow
1: label
4: directions!
3: One of the most important things you can do for your farm is improve drainage. Hi, I'm Darren Hefty. On Wednesday, February 8th, we're hosting a free Ag PhD tiling clinic in the Morton Center on our farm near Baltic, South Dakota. Whether you've been tiling for years or looking to plan your first project, you won't want to miss this event. We'll have a whole host of information for you, including a legal session with the country's top drainage lawyers, as well as presentations on tile design, lift stations, and ways to approach neighbors and landlords about tiling issues. For more details, go to agphd.com.
0: to the APHD Mailbag. I'm Brian Hefty, live in the Morton studio. Got this question in from Abdul Satter from uh, Pakistan. And uh, he, he just was watching some of our videos on boron. And he said, yeah, I use a lot of boron over here too in my crops like wheat, maize, banana, mustard. And so uh, you guys give me a lot of useful information about boron. Well, uh, thanks, and, and thanks for watching our stuff from way over in Pakistan. Uh, next one is from Amar, who says, How long does it take granular fertilizers to come available to plant roots like liquid in an irrigated field? Like liquid in an irrigated field a week or two weeks or, or months. Okay, so Amar, when we talk about granule versus liquid, this is the biggest advantage that we will often say with the liquid, it's available pretty much right now. With a granule, yeah, it all depends on how water-soluble that granule is and then how much water there is. Also, it could depend on things that need to interact with that granule, so possibly soil bacteria, just as an example. So I'll give you an example off our own farm. Last year, in we have a relatively new shelter belt's It's probably six, seven years old now. But anyway, our guys spread some dry fertilizer out there in April. Well, I went out there in June, still saw the granular fertilizer laying on the soil surface. Went out there in August, still saw it on the soil surface. Went out there in September, still saw a lot of it on the soil surface, granular fertilizer. So I'm trying to tell you here, in some of these drier areas, like where we are at, we get normally about 22 to 24 inches of total annual precip. That includes the snow. Last year, we basically got half that. So when you're in these kind of really dry areas, the, I, we often tell people, sure, granular fertilizer is is or dry fertilizer is cheaper on a per pound basis for that that fertilizer. But the liquid you can do more with it, it's easier to apply and it's available right now. So Like on our own farm here, we use granular fertilizer to build soil test levels because we figure, okay, this is over the long haul on ground we own and stuff like that. And it might take a year or two or even three years to fully break down. Like lime, for example, we usually will say, hey, it's three years minimum before it's fully broken down and done its job in the soil. Whereas the liquid, it's pretty much there right now. So anyway, yeah, it varies a lot. There's no exact answer. We would just tell you if you've got granular fertilizer... Don't expect that it's going to come available, and certainly not all available, day one. All right, next question here is from Dustin, and he says he farms over in Minnesota. Oh, and by the way, he says, unfortunately, my local PBS TV channel no longer airs your TV show. Uh, Dustin, I didn't know of anybody that, any any. Um, public broadcasting that had dropped our, our show. But anyway, if you can't find it anywhere else, if nothing else, just go to our website at agphd.com and you can watch it at any time. Anyway, he says here he recently purchased a used pole type sprayer, and his question is, what do you recommend doing to clean it out so there is zero contamination from the previous owner? All right, well, Dustin um you got to be thorough with this is the first thing that i'm going to tell you because it's not just a lot of times we think about all right i'll just throw some tank cleaner in the tank i'll triple rinse it should be good but i want you to think about in that spray tank the top so inside and at the top how are you going to get that cleaned out well um i think about the spray boom i think about the the screens the nozzles the ends of of the spray boom, even. So what I'm saying is make sure you're doing a really thorough job and hopefully you have a good shop and you can do that here this winter. The other thing that I'll throw out to you is a lot of people that clean their, their spray tanks out. And, and so we're going to tell you the same thing about everybody else is use spray tank cleaner, triple rinse, all that kind of stuff. But where we see problems is if somebody goes out with like even Roundup, Roundup, as it turns out, is a tremendous tank cleaner. And if you have Roundup in that spray tank and it happens to sit overnight sometime, it's going to potentially suck stuff out of those pores in the sprayer. And then all of a sudden that next batch you spray the next day, you go, whoa, my Roundup's contaminated. Well, it came from your sprayer. So what we started doing in your exact situation here, if we've got... A sprayer where we don't know what was in it, we not only do the triple rinse thing and use spray tank cleaner and stuff, we let the tank cleaner sit in the boom and in the tank at least overnight. And hopefully it's going to then suck more stuff out of the pores. So uh, last piece of advice I would give you is maybe your first couple of sprays your first few batches um, hopefully that's burned down and not in crop or maybe it's just spraying out some fertilizer that's one of the things I like doing like with our guys on the farm where we've got multiple crops and everything and I go okay we're making a switch over just to make sure we don't have any problems let's go spray a couple loads of liquid 28% that we got to get out there for the corn anyway pre-emerge and then I don't have so much worry so then hopefully by then everything's totally flushed out of the tank All right, next question here is from Mason, and he sent us a whole bunch of soil tests. Uh, So anyway, Mason just says here, uh, Brian and Darren, thanks for your show. I'm a huge fan and listen daily. As a young farmer, I need all the help I can get. I've attached these soil samples for two different dry land fields. And my question is, how can I get these fields back on track for top yields? Please prioritize how you would best invest your fertilizer dollars. I've already applied the recommended lime. I'm located in south-central Kansas and grow wheat, milo, soybeans, and cotton. Our average rainfall is 30 inches per year. Darren and I were talking about this yesterday. A lot of times we think about Kansas as drought country, and it's, it's not so much that they don't get rain. It's more that they have so much more heat than what we do here in South Dakota and sometimes not nearly as much humidity. Okay, so anyway... I I really appreciate, Mason, that you sent in not just your soil test, but you got a summary page and it tells us the min or minimum, the maximum, and then the average with things. So for example, with soil pH and you mentioned liming, well, I'm glad you did some liming because your minimum is 4.3. 4.3 is absolutely hurting your yield on any of those crops you mentioned. But on the other hand, you also have pH as high as 8.1. So we got to be real careful about where we're spending that money on lime because if you lime a pH that's already good or high you could certainly cause a lot more issues and you wasted the money in the lime in the first place. Okay next thing soil organic matter on average is only 1.2 percent and the cation exchange capacity is only 11 so that's medium textured soil but cation exchange capacity is as low as 7.6 so that's that's very dry. Now it doesn't say anything well I guess you did say it's two dry land fields. So rainfall is a really big deal. But let me put this another way. When we talk about soil fertility, it's more important for you than it is for the guy with irrigation or the guy like in my area where we're a lot cooler. And, you know, if I get almost as much rain as you, I won't have near the issue that you will have. So here's where I'm going with this. If your crop starts to run short on any one nutrient, what it's going to do is it's going to bring more water in, even though it doesn't need the water the nutrients come in with the water. So it's going to try bringing more water in to get the nutrients. What I'm saying is you make your crop a water waster if you don't have the right balance and right amount of soil nutrients. Now the good news when I look at your field, I look at your soil tests, is a lot of your nutrients are not in bad shape. For example, base saturation potassium, you're already at 5%. On your Olson phosphorus test, your average is 51 parts per million. I think that's I assume it's parts per million. It doesn't say. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to assume it's parts per million. And your Bray test, like your P1 Bray, your average is 37. Not terrible. I mean, would I like it a little higher? Sure. Get that up a little bit. Uh, But the biggest thing is there's a lot of variance. So even like on the potassium, we're as low as 3% and 149 parts per million. So it's hitting those areas and not hitting the areas that are already 8% K, for example, and 432 parts per million. So I'm trying to tell you here, it's variable rate fertility with a number of different things. So I'm still going to hit it with a little more phosphorus, uh, potassium in a few spots, but, you know, for the most part, you're pretty good. So just some of the other things, though, I would say like sulfur, you got to have more sulfur. You're at seven parts per million on average. That's not good. Also, you've got a spot of 14.5% sodium. So most of your stuff looks really good. But there's this one spot, well actually two spots, 13.5 and 14.5 on sodium. So that's where I'm I'm a little bit worried because that's absolutely absolutely hurting yield. And I can't really tell here on your cation exchange capacity in those spots. Yeah, it's not like super heavy. So I don't know, maybe that was dumping site for manure or something like that. But anyway, I'll give you a couple more things right after this. Stay tuned. This is Ag PhD Radio. In
4: 1923, Bert R. Benjamin had a vision, an all-purpose tractor that could do more. With that, the Farmall was born. This year, Case IH is celebrating 100 years of Farmall. 100 years of milestones, 100 years of innovation, passion, grit. And they're doing it through your stories. Share them at farmall100.com. One lucky storyteller will win their own Farmall. The tractor that is the one for
1: all. The greatest herbicide of all time earned its title by defending your soybean fields. Authority Supreme Herbicide's low-use rate formula delivers longer-lasting control of broadleaf weeds and grasses, providing you with the best-in-class combination of Group 14 PPO herbicide, Sulfentrazone, and Class 15 molecule Pyroxysulfo that outlasts the competition. We're Authority Supreme Herbicide from FMC, and we play to win. Learn more at authoritysupreme.ag.fmc.com. Always read and follow our label directions. Your crop deserves the best, not just a contender. Choose a Champ brand fungicide from New Farm for proven performance in the formula you prefer. Champ Formula 2 Flowable offers exceptional mixing and stability in a liquid copper. Champ Ion comes supercharged for superior coverage in a dry formulation. Any way you turn, New Farm has the copper solution you can win with. Put a Champ in your corner at newfarm.com slash US Crop. Think ahead to planting. Schedule your planter inspection with the experts at CNB. Make sure your equipment is in top shape and ready for the field this spring. CNB is your local John Deere dealer offering expert service and customer commitment. Learn more or schedule your appointment online today at deerequipment.com. Get your planter ready for spring with germinator closing wheels
3: from Farm Shop MFG. And now, when you buy 12 rows or more, get free shipping or 20% off an end zone bin system. Offer good while supplies last, so order yours today
1: at FarmShopMFG.com.
0: Right before the break, we were talking about Mason from Kansas, his question on soil tests, and I really thought I was going to have time to get that all done before our last break, but I didn't. So here's the wrap-up on that. Again, he sent us a whole bunch of soil tests, and he's growing wheat, milo, soybeans, cotton. He's wondering how best to invest the fertilizer dollars. Uh, Mason, just a few things that are missing on your soil test. You don't have boron, copper, manganese, iron, so I'm interested in that. When I look at zinc, for example, it's tremendous variability. You've got as high as 23 parts per million, which is too high, but then you also, and it's going to take mean, literally decades to get that down below 10, but then you've got some areas that are one part per million and that's not going to cut it a lot of times what we're looking for is a 10 to 1 ratio p1 bray phosphorus to zinc so if uh, well like on average here your p1 bray is 37 so that means we need the zinc at 3.7 roughly and personally i'd like my p1 bray at least 50 for your farm and maybe even a little bit higher so what i'm trying to tell you here is and I, i mentioned it earlier but and really, I, I say this to just about everybody. Very your rate on fertilizer as you cross the field, because there are some areas that absolutely don't need more zinc. And if you put more zinc out there, it's going to hurt you. It's not going to help you. So be really careful about where you're putting zinc and, you know, quite frankly, any of your nutrients. But the zinc is the biggest one where that really could hurt you if you uh, if you put too much or if you put more out in certain spots. Okay, one other thing that's kind of interesting with the way this particular lab here does their soil tests. They don't put hydrogen percentage in the base saturation, which I, I don't understand why, but that's what I'm used to seeing from most other labs. So anyway, just as a quick example and so for all of our for everybody listening to the show today, I'll just tell you on one soil test spot he had a 4.9 pH. If I add up his calcium magnesium, potassium and sodium percentages, um, it all adds up in total to about 55 56. <laughs> So you're like, uh, where's my 100%? Because base saturation should always add up to 100%. Well, where it is it's hydrogen. So now that he said he'd put some lime out there, the hydrogen is going to go down, which means that the calcium and magnesium are going to go up percentage-wise. I'll also say a lot of this soil is light. You know, when you're talking, I mean, half of it is 11 or less. So almost half of this ground, we'd consider light soil. We want that magnesium up near 20%. So I am bringing this up because I don't want, you Mason, to get discouraged when you look at some of this stuff and you go, "Oh my, magnesium's only at seven or nine or whatever percent right now." Well, yeah, that's because they aren't. You've got low pH in spots, and they aren't showing you the hydrogen percentage. So, don't get worried. Once you put lime out there, your magnesium and your calcium are going to go up. But my choice, um, for the most part, on your farm, would be to use dolomitic lime. That's a little bit higher in magnesium rather than the calcitic lime that is pretty low in magnesium. So anyway, those, I guess, are my comments on your soil test, Mason. And uh, again, thanks for listening to our show here and thanks for sending in your soil tests. All right, let's get to the next one here. We've got uh, George from Bulgaria sent us an email. And so for all all of our listeners here, I'll just tell you, George has actually been to our farm. He's been to several Ag PhD workshops. He's come all the way over from Bulgaria. (laughs) So that's some dedication to to learning and uh, just seeing how we are doing things here in the United States. Well, anyway, here's George's question. He says, every spring before planting corn, we use the combination of liquid 32% nitrogen plus glyphosate plus dual. And they're using the S-metallochlor form of dual. Anyway, he says, is there a problem with this mixing and what is its drawback? Okay, so George, I would say most of the time we have no issue putting 32% glyphosate and dual together. You could certainly use a compatibility agent if you want to. The challenge becomes glyphosate can get neutralized by dirt and other contaminants that sometimes are in that 32%. So what we'll see is great performance out of the dual it'll work just fine in fact we almost prefer it with fertilizer as opposed to just with water but anyway in terms of the glyphosate a lot of times we'll see less performance when you're putting a whole bunch of 32 percent in there so that really becomes the concern Um, oh and then at the end here he says dual uh, do you think it's a problem well we've used dual for years on our farm and and most of the group 15s I don't have any issue with them. I will tell you there's a safener with some of the dual products, like the. Uh, so there's dual magnum and dual two magnum. The dual two magnum uh, S metallochlor product has a safener in there, binoxicor. Um And, you know, I, I wonder if they changed that safener. But anyway, going down the rabbit hole here. the The point is, occasionally you might see a group 15 herbicide slightly stunt your crop I we don't see it often or anything especially when you're applying it pre-plant but having that safener in there is kind of nice so if I'm going to put a full rate on for my corn I would prefer to have the safener all right so otherwise no dual is a fine product it's just dual isn't quite as good as like acetylchlor would be harness or surpass or um some of the some of the other products that we have here in the United States, Zidua, Outlook, it's not quite as good on the small-seeded broadleaves. It certainly is as good on the grass, though. And Duo, for the most part, is pretty reasonable in price, so there are a lot of people that use it here and around the world. All right, next one comes in from Matt down in Texas, and he said—oh, and he was sending this to to Darren specifically because Darren had, uh, had emailed him back— on some of his questions he had about calcium and magnesium and the ratios and stuff like that. Anyway, he, he says here, Darren, you guys are so inspirational. Uh, I grew up in the Texas panhandle as a, a grandson of a rancher. Then I went to engineering and law, uh, but I'm going back to my roots and I can count on you guys every day at uh, two o'clock to help me with that. The soil fertility class was awesome. I, I attended that. Uh, and we're so blessed for the work and effort you and Brian put in. Well, anyway, thanks for that, Matt. And anyway, he says here, we're running soil tests now trying to get lime out, but I'm worried about adding too much calcium or magnesium. Our fields have too much of one or the other right now. So I'm rerunning the tests, sending them to Midwest Labs as soon as we can complete them. Um, weather got us jacked up this past week. Anyway, so yeah, Matt, if you, uh, if you want us to look at your soil tests, we're certainly more than willing to do that. I would say we talk a fair amount on the show about calcium and magnesium, and I did just a little bit a minute ago with the last question that came in. But personally, most of the time, what I have found is that I want to focus on N, P, and K, sulfur, and some of the micronutrients almost before I focus on the calcium and magnesium. So, now don't get me wrong if my pH is way off that's a different story but if it's just oh my calcium's a little high or low or my magnesium is a little high or low let's fix a lot of the other things first we've gotten a better return on investment doing that and then taking a look a little bit harder maybe at the calcium magnesium because the other thing about it is the soil can only hold so much stuff and by the time you get more phosphorus out there more potassium get those things in balance you're putting out sulfur so you get those at the right that at the right level the micronutrients you might find your calcium magnesium adjusting just slightly anyway so that's kind of why i want to fix all the other things first all right next one is from bruce he says uh hi guys i am from eastern ontario looking for your thoughts SWAT mapping is taking the area by storm here, replacing traditional grid soil sampling, as well as adding input for variable seeding rate scripts for planting. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this SWAT map technology. So SWAT stands for soil, water, and topography. By the way, so basically, it's zone sampling. Um, yeah, Bruce, I'm, I'm all in favor of zone sampling. I, I I, I don't really care exactly how a guy does it other than, let me say this, whether you are zone sampling or grid sampling, I'm an enormous believer in small zones or grids. If you if we're talking about some 10, 15, 20 acre zone, um, that's not going to work. I'll tell you that right now. No possible chance. You've got to go on the small side. And don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying you have to do that every single year and forever, but to identify the variability in your field at least one time during your farming career, please go small grids or zones. But, yeah, I I like the idea of zones. It's just we're also pretty big believers in trying to help farmers do more things themselves on their farm if they want to. And so by yourself, it's... A little bit challenging to come up with well what's exactly the right zone we've had lots of questions about that and i don't know that there is any one answer grids are just easier and simpler that's really why we talk grids more than we do zones but i'm fine either way especially like i say at least one time if you go small all right before we wrap up the show today i just want to say thanks to alex he was producing the show for us uh, thanks to all our guests and everybody who uh, uh, wrote in with questions And thanks to you for listening. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.